Hello, Mainly fans. It is great to be back here with you. I am your co-host, Ian Saxine, here as always with the incomparable Tiffany Link. Tiffany? Incomparable. Incomparable, <laughs> yeah. I think so. Uh, how are we, how we doing this week? I am excellent. My dog, Gabby, is in the running for America's favorite pet, so... You know, if there's any mainly fans out there that want to give her a vote, they can go to her Instagram page on Fab Life of Gabs and uh, click the link in her bio. You can vote once per day if you like. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we'll see how she does. Happy to be in round two. That's very exciting. I like her picture. She's she is wearing a crown in the in the in your cover photo of it's this from entry. Her fourteenth birthday, so of mm. course she's wearing a crown. <laughs> it's pretty legit. Uh, Lenny, uh, my cat has already expressed his preference. He is, he's on team Gabs. Appreciate so. it. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Glad they're not running against each other. So. No, it's true. <laughs> I, I hadn't occurred to me. I didn't know this contest existed until you started sharing the, the Gabby news. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I've never been very competitive, but like Lenny is pretty great in the cat category. And so, uh, I think he, Next he would, year, you yeah, know, I know, I know I'll, I'll ask him about it. We'll see. We'll see what his thoughts are about uh, entering the circuit, throwing his throwing his <laughs> fluffy metaphorical hat into the ring. Yeah, I didn't. It's a long process, and I didn't mm. really realize that when I signed up for it. Uh, but you know, here we are. We'll see what happens. So. Indeed, indeed. So uh, the mainly fan nation is is waiting with bated breath to to find out if if Gabby goes all the way. That'll yeah, be great. We'll keep you posted. That's right. That's right. So, Tiffany, what are we doing today? Oh, Ian, today we are talking about another topic that just brings in a lot of really interesting social aspects um, from the early 19th century, the 1830s, not the least of which is vegetarianism. Excellent. Excellent. So we're talking vegetarianism. Uh, it's tie-ins with, uh, I don't know, what other what other phenomenons is it tying into? I think, you know, health lifestyle movements kind of combating some early industrial period, you know, health and cleanliness situations. And we're going to throw a little more women's rights at you this week. So nice. <laughs> but you left out the rioting. Oh, the, the riots. Rioting. Yeah, the rioting over. I mean, I said women's rights, so I felt like it was implied that there'd be sadly <laughs> so, men getting mad about women's rights. Yes, there's some of that, too. So uh, a little bit of everything once again. Uh, and I like that. Yeah, this is really similar time period, at least overlap to uh, the Beringera uh, true crime. Episode. Yeah, kind of, you know, exactly what was happening leading leading up to that. So, yeah, it was Maybe we should have done them in reverse, but what can you do? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, that's great. And so, yeah, usually uh, at the beginning of an episode like this, I would look for some sort of wordplay, you know, around vegetables, some sort of corny joke, perhaps. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, corn is technically a starch, so epic fail, Ian. Epic fail. Oh, you're not being a very good Midwesterner if you don't think that corn is a vegetable. That's that's a good point. That is a good point. Uh, would we say that I'm being true to my roots? No? Yeah. All right. All right, fine. Let's just start this thing. All right. We're doing it.
today with Avery Yale Camilla, the food columnist for the Maine Sunday Telegram for the last 15 years. And she is going to be telling us about a bit of food history that most people probably don't know anything about. Welcome, Avery. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I have to say, um, I I was reading uh, a piece of yours in, in preparation for this, and I'm still wondering now as we eventually get to this you know the drama buildup there is a riot involved in portland and this show we've we talked about the portland rum riot of the 1850s and as an american historian i'm always dazzled at the array of reasons people riot and then there's the common depressing ones like racism or you know xenophobia but then there's all these other really random reasons too. And so I'm wondering once we get to it, if this ends up being, yes, some more social critiques at Graham's speeches, or if this is something more garden variety of people really getting miffed about food choices and dietary peculiarities. And so part of me is really rooting for something like really uh, really oddball here, you know, in the spirit of the, the New Hampshire pumpkin fest riot of the early 21st century, which is, I think is just rowdy youths, which is also a a common. So anyway, this is my, this is my sideline cheerleading here, but it's great to have you here. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I think that there are some surprises in this, in this story. Yeah. So why don't you, so we're talking today about the Graham riot from 1834. And so why don't you start off with telling us a little bit about uh, Mr. Graham and his background and what, um, what sort of brought him on his lecture circuit? Well, so Graham came to Maine in 1834. He gave two series of lectures. But at that time, he was already a household name in Portland, in Brunswick, where he also spoke, and across Maine. He was a massive celebrity in the 1830s and 1840s. And so long before he showed up here, people already knew him. The newspapers referred to him just by his last name. So he he was a, a big deal and uh, people people had a lot to say. So in the summer of 1834, the hot topic across the U.S. is the riot that happened in Portland. In late June, an unruly, quote, almost crazy, unquote, mob of men had attacked a church on Temple Street where Graham was speaking. They hurled stones through the windows and they halted the lecture. An even bigger mob gathered the following evening and prevented him from speaking at all. So this is, you know, sensational behavior, big time happening, right? So newspaper editors here in Portland and across the country were, you know, really interested and they had a lot to say, but they had to speculate at the cause of this riot. Why did this happen? So they blamed it on Graham's vegetarianism and his temperance views. But it turns out that was fake news. So almost 200 years later, we finally know what the reason for the riot was. And it was his lecture to mothers. So here we are in 1834 and we're finding early indications of the women's rights movement bubbling up in Portland. So, you know, he's a huge celebrity 
1834, he's on a lecture tour. He goes to Brunswick first, where the Col Bowdoin College is located. And also at the time, the Medical School of Maine was on the Bowdoin College campus. And so there he delivers a month worth of lectures at the Congregational Church. Now, this wasn't just like some random dude and maybe, you know, your crazy uncle went to hear him. No, like every important person went. Who chaired the lecture series? Maine sitting governor, Robert Dunlap, who was a Brunswick resident. He chaired the whole thing. More than 300 people showed up. And this wasn't just one night. This was a lecture series that took place over a month. At the conclusion of the lecture series, a group composed of three professors, three doctors, two attorneys, and a general wrote a letter endorsing Graham's principles. This is published widely in the newspapers, and it's like, all right, cool. And everybody knew he was coming to Portland the following month. So look at this celebrity endorsement, you know, all the bigwigs. These are all prominent white men who are endorsing this guy. I just love the idea that like Maine sitting governor has the time to do all this. Like I'm now imagining <laughs> Governor Mills being like, I have thoughts about weightlifting and fitness that I am now going to officially chair as governor and have, you know, this like TV doctor come along. Uh, and, and do all these things. So good to know. Uh, was the lecture series billed as um, views on health and vegetarianism? Or I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that the governor and all these people were endorsing a giant lecture series on women's rights. But no, it wasn't <laughs> women's rights per se. I mean, what he was saying has a women's rights component to it, but that certainly was not how it's advertised. It's definitely how he's known is um, for his system of living. And his system of living is exactly the temperance movement at that time. So it wasn't just Graham's thing. It's just he is the mo he's the celebrity who's associated with it. So you say Graham and it stands in for vegetarian. At that time, the word vegetarian hadn't been coined yet. So when somebody wanted to say vegetarian, they would say Grahamite. Somebody's following Grahamism. Oh. And so... So that's how well known he was. So, you know, you didn't have to say Graham's going to talk about all these things. You just said Graham is coming to town and people knew what he was going to talk about because it was a temperance movement, which wasn't just vegetarianism. It was not drinking alcohol, not drinking coffee, not taking pharmaceutical drugs, using water to bathe. There was a big push for bathing, which so, um, so yeah, and I think that the governor chairing that really reflects like what a big deal this was, you know, that this wasn't just some guy that nobody, you know, a couple people had heard of. It was like, he's this huge guy who's shown up in town and he wasn't bringing new ideas to Maine. These ideas had been in circulation for a long time in Maine, but were we seeing a resurgence in the last couple decades by the 1830s? People had already been talking about this. And one interesting tidbit uh, that I found uh, that documents the influence Graham had in Brunswick, it's in the 1878 history of Brunswick, Topsom, and Harpswell, Maine. And that history book reports that Graham was, quote, an attractive lecturer and his theory gained many adherents. The meat market ran low and butchers feared for their calling. Some really feared that their occupation was gone. 
So that's what they said, you know, a few decades later after he had been there. People are still talking about it. It it's noted. But after that, I don't really find any records or people talking about this in main history books. It seems to have just been um, omitted. Avery, could I ask yeah. as we get set up for this for some of the background, because I know you're uh, a big area of expertise for you really is vegetarianism, right? And it's, it's background in here. So in the early 19th century, clearly, as you as you make clear, Graham is not the only person with these right. kinds of ideas. Could you maybe uh, give us a bit of background on the origins of a plant-based diet as a for health reasons, right? And and sort of who who is pushing for this in at least the United States, and you know what either science or other principles, according to the time, you know, is pushing this. Sure. So okay. So that's like a, a huge question because the earliest records of vegetarianism go back 2,500 years. So this is not new at all. And right. everything that vegetarians are saying today, they've been saying this whole time. So what happens, is, and this happens with a lot of movements, social movements throughout history, I'm sure, you know, they wax and they wane. And so you get this, you know, kind of ebb and flow. So in the 1830s, it's an uprising of vegetarianism or upwelling, you know, there's, mm -hmm. it's a lot of social interest in it. And then it's going to go out of fashion when the Civil War hits, and then it will come back up in the late 19th century. But um, so prior to Graham, let's see, so we go all the way back to like Pythagoras, and Buddha and the Mahavira, who were all contemporaries. And they all like put forth these huge vegetarian ideas that are followed by, you know, billions of people today. So that's where we see the first historical evidence of this, but it carries on throughout history. You know, you, you get, by the time you're at the 1830s, we've already had people like Benjamin Franklin, who adopted vegetarianism in the 1720s. And he had read an Englishman named Thomas Tryon's book, uh, Way to Health, which is a vegetarian book. And that is why he went vegetarian. So, and, you know, Franklin wasn't alone in doing that. There was, that was another up, upwelling of interest in vegetarianism back in the early 1700s. So it, it comes and goes uh, throughout history. And during Graham's time, like another really well-known vegetarian was Dr. William A. Alcott. And he published widely, has all kinds of books. And I'm going to talk about one of them um, a little bit later um, as we get into as we get into this. Uh, but it's called Vegetable Diet and was published in 1838. So uh, so that comes after um, after this riot. But these ideas, you know, they're not new. And the temperance movement at that time, like before we get to Neil Dow in the 1840s, temperance is really different than what it becomes later when it becomes prohibition. So this early temperance movement uh, was all about vegetarianism. And there was even a term called the temperance diet, hmm. which was a vegetarian diet. When you were doing research at MHS, you were even finding evidence that there were like hotels and things like that, that were catering to people who were following these specific diets and the the temperance diet and the early movement, correct? Like right. So, so in Portland, there there is some evidence, but um, nobody ever wrote about the food. So, were <laughs> they or weren't they? We know that there were were uh, temperance boarding houses that were vegetarian in Boston and New York. So, those are well documented. 
And I've found some evidence that uh, there was likely at least a hotel in Portland uh, called Moorheads that either catered to vegetarians or maybe was all vegetarian. I kind of doubt that, but you know, that there was some link there. They advertised as a temperance hotel. There were multiple hotels in Portland that advertised as temperance hotels, but they never tell you what they served for food. And there is a report, the only review I've I've read of a temperance tavern, which was another thing, like a temperance tavern where you go have some food and drink, is from uh, Jeremiah Hacker in his Portland Pleasure Boat. And he was like a hardcore Gramite all the way temperance guy. And he went and he would eat like bread and water. Like that's the simple, basic vegetarian diet is bread and water because your grains and your water because they don't drink alcohol, it's water. So he went to a temperance tavern and said that they were like drinking all this coffee and eating all this pork. And he was so disgusted that he just left and went and bought a loaf of bread and had a nice drink of water from the public fountain. (laughs) And it's like so fabulous to read him. You know, he's just like so indignant. And I'm just like, I can imagine, you know, like what he's going through. Um, but you know, it's, it's in the 1840s when, when hackers, uh, writing, writing that, that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, so, you know, Graham has this real successful lecture series in Brunswick and, you know, that's an academic town and, you know, people are, you know, got the governor there and, um, you know, it goes really well. So, you know, he must imagine he's going to have the most amazing time in Portland, and it starts out that way. Like he shows up in town and like the Eastern Argus newspaper is all like, oh, Graham's in town, we hear. He's going to be delivering his lecture. How exciting. Um, and so he on June 5th, he sh- he's in Portland. He delivers his first lecture. It's free. It's at the Second Congregational Church is where he does that one. And then on the 9th, he moves to the Temple Street uh, Chapel and to deliver his series. And that's, you know, where where the trouble's going to happen. But today, that's where the entrance to the uh, Nickelodeon parking garage is approximately. So the the newspapers were full of talk about his lectures and influential Portlanders were in attendance. So, um, you know, another thing that this riot and all this stuff reveals and really illustrates is how Maine was different from other places at this time um, in terms of it had a vocal group of medical doctors, mainstream medical doctors who supported Graham. Now, that is distinctly different from places like Boston in New York, where the mainstream medical community tended to dismiss Graham and ridicule Graham and instead prescribe things like meat and opium and mustard poultices, like literally. Um, So, really different. And um, on July 22nd, nine members of the Portland Medical Association who had attended Graham's lecture series, they issued a testimony in favor of the Graham system of living. So, you know, this is pretty big contrast. Graham publishes it in a book that comes out a few years later called a defense of the Graham system of living or remarks on diet and regimen. And um, he includes that testimony in there with the list of the doctors who signed it. And I think that also speaks to the fact that the idea of drug-free medicine, of do-it-yourself medical care 
was really popular in Maine. I mean, Maine's a rural place that, you know, people don't have access to doctors. I mean, people talk about, you know, healthcare problems today. I mean, my God, imagine the early 19th century. I mean, you're living out in some small town in Maine, you don't have access to, you know, a lot of a lot of medical care. So people wanted to be able to do things on their own, which was is also, you know, something in the appeal of water cure, which was huge in Maine. There were some public water cures, but in terms of individual people participating in a movement, you know, just in their own private home, in their own private sphere, water cure was popular here. The water cure, I'm assuming it's not just drinking water, but is this like a bath or a, you, so you know? Water cure was this whole movement that's tied to temperance and is intersects with vegetarianism. And it it comes up at this time. It, it really is is more in the 1840s, but you're seeing it. You know, people start to talk about it, and it's it, it's a couple different things. It can be something that you just purely do in your home, which involves drinking water, um, bathing, you know, regular hand washing. Like it was super filthy back then. People were just covered in manure and coal dust and just all sorts of things, and they didn't have running water in their homes. So. So yeah, so it's it's prescribing the the washing, but it also had other things too, like don't wear tight clothing. So, um, you know, that had some impl implications for men and women who are in like really tight neck things and bodices and all this stuff. You know, wear you know proper warm stuff or not too warm. Uh, fresh air. It was about getting fresh air, getting sunlight. So all these things now are just like they seem like nothing to us because it's just like this is normal advice about how to be healthy, right? Is like, go get some exercise, drink some water, get some fresh air, uh, get proper sleep. These were, you know, but these were like a thing, you know, it was like you had to tell people back then because they weren't doing that. So, um, and part of it was, you know, eat a vegetarian diet. And so, so that all was, you know, appealing. So the interesting thing is, so like, it sounds like Graham, you know, is great. He's got all these testimonies of these prominent men saying, you know, his, his system is the way to go. So if that's the case, why in the world was there a riot? I'm guessing because like, you know, reading your article, I'm also thinking I'm anti-riot. But if we were to basing some of this, uh, some of these prescriptions uh, coming into town and saying, well, ladies, the men in your life have too much meat, alcohol and recreational sex. And all that needs to stop. Um, right. you know, and they need to take baths. Yeah. And often. they need a bath. Take Clean a bath. Up. No booze, no meat. Sex should not be for recreation. I'm anti-riot, but what please. else are you going to do in the 1830s? I know. I mean, Come on, especially <laughs> It takes a lot of your fun. There's away. not enough emphasis on how boring life was for some people <laughs> uh, who didn't have to work all the time. I actually thought this would be a weird tangent, but it is this like time period. The abbreviated Pride and Prejudice movie with uh, Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden, less popular among Pride and Prejudice fans than like the, the five hour, you know, Colin Firth one. But anyway, one thing that this period piece does so well is it's, you know, a mom and her five daughters, and they're just sitting around being bored sometimes because like they're not able to do as much. And sometimes that gets lost. And so <laughs> lest we lose sight of some of that. Um, but please, Avery, uh, I know we're getting back to uh, Graham rolling into town and the other substance of his message. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because at this time, people were bored. 
And I mean, people worked all the time just to yeah. eat your meal. It was like a full day project, you know, because you had to, when you made your graham bread, you had to first get that wheat, maybe mill it on your own. Graham advised like rinsing it and then drying it. And this whole process that would take you all day just to make your flour. So it's just unbelievable. But if you had servants and like, if you lived in the city and you could rely on bakehouses and stuff, yeah, you had so much, you know, time and what are you what are you going to do so lectures were huge that's why he was so popular is because like he is you know this is the mega star of the day because he's on the lecture series and people loved lectures because they it was all they had they didn't have an internet or a phone or a tv or a radio or a telegram or anything there's just nothing you know so it's just whatever entertainment you can put on in your community or if you can be lucky enough to get graham to come it is the big time so yes he had all these things that could be really offensive to people who are tied to the conventional way of things. And the editors and the writers definitely blamed it on, you know, the no alcohol, no meat. Okay. So that's what took all the blame. But we have to remember in the 1830s, they couldn't talk about sex in the newspaper. That is no. So some of it could be fake news. They're confused. They didn't know. They're just guessing. Some of it can be, this is a euphemism or something else. And that something else was the lecture to mothers. It was his, he had a whole series of lectures that he did. He had a lecture to young men that was the same information, but to male audiences. And that didn't provoke a riot. Nobody cared about that. But this was his most provocative lecture and no copy of it exists today. But we do know what he talked about thanks to the work of modern scholars, uh, particularly history professor April R. Haynes. And um, she's documented what, what he said. And what he said is that he shared information about reproductive anatomy, which was completely unavailable to women at that point. I mean, imagine birthing a baby and you have no friggin' idea what's going on down there. So like he's- Or just at least formally, like we should, you know, point out there's various there's still like midwives, and, midwives yeah, and there's other sure, knowledge, but you, you are right to point out in the sort of published venue published uh, right like right. there's no there's yeah. no illustration and he yeah. had illustrations so that's kind of like borderline pornography or probably was pornography back then so so yeah so he had this information that he's sharing with women that was really provocative um in terms of the social norms of the day and um he also advised people to not have so much sex that was part of the temperance thing be temperate like it wasn't no sex but it was like you only have sex if you are going to procreate that's the only reason and only do it like no more than once a month okay so he's challenging both you gender time it just right if you want to have that baby <laughs> exactly right like you know so so um you know, but we got to consider the times like pe women got pregnant all the time. And, you know, then you've got to be pregnant and care, care for the other five kids and cook that dinner that's going to take all day. And, you know, oh, yeah, go plow that field. And <laughs> there's so many, so many um, things. So he's challenging both gender and racial norms by what he's saying, because what he's saying is that all people are subject to the same natural laws. That is controversial to say that everybody's subject to the same laws. So that's what he's saying. And I think what's happened with Graham's scholarship is that after the sexual revolution in the 1960s, 
academics really painted Graham as a prude, which he completely looks like a prude compared to our, you know, lens, our modern lens of how we look at these things. But what, you know, I can see, and I know other scholars who've looked at this have seen, is that Grahamism back then is a tool to liberate American women from gender-based oppression. Now, that's not obvious from anything you're going to read in the newspaper back then, but this is what's going on. I mean, in the 1800s, enslaved women, they have no rights and, you know, they're routinely raped, their babies are taken. Free women are not really that free. Um, they had no vote. They had few, if any, bodily rights, no access yeah. to in marriage law, well, you know, into the 19th and into the 20th century in some ways. I mean, definitely. Uh, there's no, and we were we were talking about some of these themes on on a previous episode with Dr. Elizabeth DeWolf, DeWolf Dr. Elizabeth DeWolf, uh, talking about um, married women don't have the right to refuse their husband's sex oh, uh, in law. And there's not. no, oh. marital rape doesn't become uh, enshrined in law, although it is, of course, a, a fact, but in law until the later in the 20th century in various states. And so, yeah, the vote, I mean, something to point out, you mentioned the vote. I mean, the, the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, uh, they were new for saying, we demand the vote, but a lot of the other problems they listed, it was stuff they hoped the vote would help them fix. And it, right. you know, it was much more bodily autonomy and personal. Exactly. Your point is taken that viewing it as, from a modern term, sex negative or positive is kind of besides the point. Right. right. That yes, if you're kind of just like about yeah. making people more pleasant to be around, like if yeah. they're not drunk, yeah. they don't smell bad, they're eating healthier, then you have this better society that allows people, women particularly, to perhaps move a little more freely and have a little bit more control over what's going on. And, you know, what we hosted a, a small like pop up exhibit a couple years ago at Maine Historical about suffrage and you know, it was really surprising to people that a lot of the suffrage movement by today's terms was very conservative, you know, not drinking, yeah. having these sort of like uh, kind of rules in place, but really it was rules that would make primarily women's and children's lives better. Right. Married women don't control any property. Uh, they bring in, a, even still as late as the 1830s, uh, a lot of married women, due to coverture, didn't own any any property they brought in the marriage and their own wages. And so if their husband, say, got drunk and spent away the family money, there was no legal recourse that she had. And so one socially acceptable avenue to take, instead of saying we will overturn patriarchy, which, of course, some also wanted, uh, it was somewhat more manageable to say, well, if at least the saloons stop preying on our menfolk and stop funneling our money and all the rest into that, that at least will make American women and children safer. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's the environment. So, so when you, you know, you think about it in that context, it, it, it may, it, it's in a different light of what was going on back then, you know, abortion was completely illegal sexual harassment's rampant. So it was a paradise for sexual predators back then. I mean, you talk about me too. I mean, you know, 
there was no voice for that. So, you know, today's scholars do seem to be able to better understand uh, what was going on uh, back then with Graham. And there were other lecturers, too, who had sim a similar message. It's just Graham was the, the best known. So, you know, I think Graham, he gave women the ability to say no because it was good for their health and their husband's health. Yeah, so that's, you know, kind of a powerful thing, you know, coming from a prominent person. I just wanted to, before we continue, some people have called the era or the ethos of Graham and his compatriots puritanical. Mm -hmm. And as a scholar of the early modern <laughs> period, I want to say no, because the Puritans would have never, whether they were in Massachusetts or Maine or anywhere else, the Puritans would have never said sex should only be for procreation. Uh, the Puritans very much favored fun sex within marriage uh, as long as it was in moderation and the puritans believed in moderate consumption of alcohol so whether whether an individual supports or does not those things let's not confuse sylvester graham with a with a puritan he's very much new right he's a he's a 19th century in some ways cutting edge uh, innovator right bringing these these new ideas sorry that was right. you know this but uh <laughs> but lay people who come into my classroom sometimes do not and then start laying all this at the foot of the, the 17th and early 18th century folks that's all <laughs> right yeah so you know he was he was he was a man of his times and you know he comes out of the temperance movement is where where he comes from he's known now for his you know vegetarian message but you know back then he you know had a lot of, a lot of different things he was known for so all right you ready to hear what happened let's get to that uh, riot yeah yeah so the date of the riot not real certain um records are pretty sketchy on this so uh, what what we do know is that on June 27th, the Portland Daily Advertiser, which is a newspaper of the day, runs an ad for a, quote, anti-Graham lecture. OK, it's taking place at 8 p.m. at the same time Graham's going to be speaking just around the corner. That same day, 160 Portland women adopt seven resolutions in support of Graham. Five prominent women even have the audacity to put their name on it. Unheard of. I mean, women were supposed to be completely silent in the public sphere in terms of like political issues and stuff like that. So the women who signed it, they were um, they were all uh, really well-connected people. They were Mrs. Mary Clapp Porter, who was the chair of the group. Her daughter, um, Elizabeth Clapp Porter, marries Alexander Longfellow in 1851. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Charles Rogers was a secretary. Mrs. Henry Goddard, she convened the meeting. Mrs. J. Husted um, and Mrs. Archer Ware, whose uh, husband was a founding member of the Maine Historical Society. And I referred to them all in that way because that's how they put their names on the document. All of them except uh, Mary Clapp Porter using their husband's name, uh, which I think also speaks to the the time. Like you know, that's that's how things were done. So um, we also know the names of the men who instigated this riot, and uh, that's Ooh. because uh, down at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, they have Graham's lecture notes, and at the la on the last page of this three hundred and fifty page document, all handwritten. He lists the names of the people who got up the riot against him in Portland. 
And he Can named. Ask, is this like an enemies list of his now, or is he like, I'm making sure <laughs> I know these people? <laughs> he, so it's really interesting. Someone obviously from Portland has told him this, you know. So he's gotten a letter, you know, that we don't have that, but we have this list that he's put in his lecture notes. So they've listed them. And then what he writes is he writes a little description of, of the, the guys, it's, you know, kind of sounds a little slanderous. Um, but uh, Professor Haynes, she looked into all of them and says, yeah, they were not really great people. They were womanizers, you know, they were doing other unethical things. So, um, so yeah, so it's, you know, so it's interesting. Um, this, you know, they were, you know, the kind of people who would be threatened by, you know, a, a, a changing sexual standard where they couldn't just be harassing every person uh, that they want to. So, yeah, so that, so he does, he has that list of, of the names, uh, which I, I find fascinating. And um, you mentioned your interest in, in the riots and in riots in general, and this was a time of riots. There were all kinds of, of race riots that were taking place at this time. Um, and there were other Graham riots too. Every oh. single one of them provoked by the lecture to mothers. So in December of 1833, so before he came to Maine, he went to Providence, Rhode Island and Ooh. gave the lecture to mothers, riot. Oh. Then in 1833. Come on, Providence. Get it together. <laughs> well, they were the first. They were the first ones. So that's that's, that's us. Where, yeah. So it started. It started in Providence. And um then in, so then he doesn't give the lecture for a long time after what happens in Portland. But in 1837, he reports that the uh, women of Boston just really wanted to hear this lecture, this lecture to mothers. Um, and so he agreed to give it. And he thought there would just be, you know, a little slander in the newspaper or something. Instead, there's a full blown riot. Um, so, you know, it's, it's he can't. And that, I think that might have been the last time he attempted was the deliver. Brunswick lecture the same lecture or was it a different, like, uh, like you said, he had sort of like the men's version and the women's version. So did it just get better received because of it being more of an academic town or was it a different lecture? We content? don't, we don't know. So like his lecture notes don't say, you know, and I gave this lecture this night and that, you know, so we don't have a record of, of like what he gave in Brunswick or anywhere, but you and know, the we newspapers just like, Graham lecture, no, no right. context. Okay. There were a couple ads that I found in Portland that said, oh, this night I'm going to be delivering such and such a lecture. But, you know, they, they it's not like a complete list. Um, so anyway, so we we don't, I haven't seen any documentation that would say 100% that he delivered the lecture to mothers in Brunswick. I haven't seen anything that says he hasn't. So we don't know. But the fact that all of those people signed off on it and endorsed it and sort of advertised it does that lend you to believe it It maybe wasn't that lecture, you know? Well, or... so the lecture to mothers, he only would deliver to women. Okay. Those guys oh. would not have been allowed in. Have been there. So this was it. part oh, of it okay. is that the lecture to men, he would only give to men, to young men. It was called to young men. Um, and the lecture to mothers, he would only give to women. So if he did give it in Brunswick, those guys who signed that testimony did not hear it. They might have heard Got the it. lecture to men, mm -hmm. but like 
they wouldn't have heard the lecture to mothers if it was given. And now maybe because it was an academic town and nobody's going to create a fuss and these are all like the governor and maybe he's, you know, an upstanding guy. I don't know. Um, you know, so maybe they're just not the types that we had in Portland who were more threatened by his his, you know, gender message. Um, so, Avery, yeah, that I reminds me, is he or so you describe this as a lecture to mothers were unmarried women allowed mm -hmm. to come to these lectures or not because unmarried women aren't going to hear about sex? No, they could come. Oh, they yeah. could. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like future mothers, I guess. Yeah. Prepared before, yeah. You're, okay. <laughs> before you're there. Yeah. I wasn't sure if maybe this sort of ticket to entry was like, sorry, no, for, for married women's ears only. So, okay. That makes them more radical too. Yeah. Preparing. Real them. radical. Just, Real yeah, radical. Yeah. So like Mary Gove Nichols, she comes on along a few years later, she's out of Massachusetts, Lynn, Massachusetts, and she does the same like series of lectures. She does this, this kind of, you know, talk about, you know, sexual anatomy and, you know, don't have as much sex. She actually is more radical in her talks, but she wasn't censored in the same way he was because she was a woman talking to women. So it was like he, the fact that he was a man delivering this to women was, you know, seemed, you know, and then what he was saying, add that all up together and you get a riot, I guess. Clearly. Um, I, another question I had in terms of famous people. So he was in Brunswick uh, in 18, you said 34. 34. I, I'm trying to remember my Harriet Beecher Stowe chronology. Was she potentially in Brunswick in the audience at the time? Or was that during her Ohio Sojourn. I feel like it might be early, but I okay. I can't say off the okay. top of my head. Longfellow was, oh, there, he was there, but oh. but we haven't been able to find any evidence that he was at the lectures. Hmm. So he would have been at the at the college then. Um, yeah, so you know, the, and you know, who else was in attendance? It probably was a lot of professors and students who you know went went to this. You know. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I, and, you know, I, it, it has this information about, you know, gender and women's rights to it. And that's really fascinating. And it also has a lot of food history in it because what happens when Graham shows up, this huge celebrity causing this huge scene in Maine is that we see Maine's commercial vegetarian food market start to develop in that there are businesses that are deliberately courting people who want to eat a Gramite diet. And, you know, we see that most distinctly in Portland, but we also see it in that comment from the Brunswick history book about the meat market running low. You know, that's people not, you know, that's people making a market-based choice. Um, and, you know, the 1834 food was, was a contentious topic because it was changing. You know, prior to this, in Maine, in rural homesteading Maine, most people were semi-vegetarians because there was not the infrastructure to transport and kill and then store meat. You know, you might have some in the fall, but then, you know, the further you go from the fall, you have less. So you might use it to season something, a pot of beans, um, you know, maybe a celebratory meal at a holiday, but it's not a regular thing that people have. And when um, it is, yeah. it's a lot of salted, a lot of preserved, Salt, as right. we remind, like most meat, if it's, yeah, if it's not recently killed, you're looking at some kind of smoked, jerked, salted, cured mm -hmm. kind of a situation. 
Right. No refrigeration. So, right. so then by the 1830s, things are changing because we are getting some like advances in technology and transportation. The Erie Canal has been open for a decade by the 1830s. And that was made for major change in flour and wheat. And wheat will go bad if it's not stored properly. If it's whole wheat, it's the bran that is the problem for spoilage. So if you strip that off and grind it into white flour, it is way easier to transport and sell it. And this doesn't have a lot of nutrition in it. So this is what Graham is talking about. Eat whole grain flour, which became known as Graham flour, Graham bread. Graham crackers are the only one of the things that used to bear his name that still oh my gosh do. although he would he would just <laughs> he would hate them now he'd be he would like, hate like them. horrified yeah because they're oh, sweet horrified. he hated sugar <laughs> so. he hated sugar yeah right. yeah there's a report that um a confectioner so a, a candy shop in portland the owner she told one of graham's supporters here in town that um if if she met Graham in the street and she had her gun on on her, she would shoot him <laughs> because she had lost a hundred dollars worth of business because of his lectures. So there's another example of the market changing. But one of the real interesting ones is uh, we start to see the Graham bread coming from the the bakeries here in Portland. He said Graham bread should be baked at home by a mother. So a little questionable there, but. He's, but the right reality in Portland or, you know, really any city at that time is that people didn't have ovens necessarily in their home. And if they did, it was expensive to run because you had to get the fuel. So buying bread in a public bakehouse was a mark of city living. And the Portland bakeries responded to the demand for graham bread that his his lectures kicked up. And there's all kinds of ads in the Portland newspapers of different bakeries offering the bread recommended by Dr. Graham of good stock brought from New York expressly for the purpose. And, and your article tells a little bit about the Graham bread or the, the ideal Graham bread, which doesn't have like milk or lard. It just, I guess, surprises me that if you were given the option that you would really keep buying that bread because, uh, I mean, wheat bread today is... Uh, good but an acquired taste you know so i can't i feel like even then it would have been unpleasant maybe right uh, well and i think it's so it's kind of a you know it's a cultural thing so if you grow up eating wheat bread you will be used to it and yeah. at that time we're going through a change whereas like in the pioneer days you had some wheat berries and you ground them up and then you had wheat flour and you made your thing and you were lucky if you had that because mostly you had corn and you didn't like corn because you were european and you might mix that with some rye that you also ground up on your own so that's like whole grain but this white flour is like newly available in the marketplace you know because of the erie canal and because of different technologies that are going on in the the food industry at this time and there's also um food is is adulterated flour might have all sorts of things in it to stretch it and make it look white so that's you know something that Graham talked about too there's a danger because there's no regulation you know people put all kinds of crazy stuff in food back then. So, so there's that element too, that this is, this is not only the vegetarian market developing, it's the health food market. It's this thing that New England becomes known for of, you know, promoting foods based on their link to better living. 
And is this the time I'm wondering, Avery, that because we see after the industrial revolution, the real, the invention of the idea of nature and its restorative purpose uh, for people living in industrialized settings, right? Where that's not a concept that makes any real sense to people who aren't. And so is it this time period where supposedly natural qualities in food is touted as being better or healthier or wholesome? Or does that does that kick in later? I think that's part of the temperance movement is the, you know, the simple, natural. It's very much, I mean, they, everything's so limited. It's just like they had nothing to do back then. Well, they also, there's nothing to buy in the store. You know, they didn't have whole foods that didn't exist. So like, it's just products are so limited. And so you got to make most everything at home. But yeah, I think it is because now the market is changing and now there are, are becoming products that you can buy that are made in a factory somewhere. So it's that like skepticism. So the backlash to it is no natural, homemade, you know, simply prepared uh, because, you know, the recipes from this time period, I don't think would be appealing. I mean, you talk about the bread, but like they the temperance movement also didn't like spices or seasoning of any sort. So, you know, this is why New England food is considered bland is because there were Graham and these other people who were telling everybody to just know, don't have spice, don't have pickles, don't have, you know, mustard, that's radical, you know? So, so that was, that was part of it too. And so like, I don't, you know, I'm not sure it tasted that good. And this is part of like the temperance movement was very much part of the second great awakening and a very religious movement. So this is part of an even earlier part of the vegetarian movement. That's an, the aesthetic vegetarianism, where you are like living your life in a minimal fashion. You know, you you just have the most basic bread and water kind of food, simple clothing, you know, don't drink alcohol, all those sort of things. So, you know, it does, the temperance movement definitely has those kind of religious fasting kind of elements to it. There's yeah, sounds of- awesome and fun. Totally, yeah. <laughs> totally can't understand why anybody wouldn't want this, this coming to town. Uh, There's a lot of bread Anthony and water God. talk, but yes. um, are they are they pushing vegetables or, I mean, I know the availability of that is probably limited, but not mm-hmm. as limited as like meat or fish might be. Mm-hmm for transport or storage. So uh, are they touting that as well? Or are they just kind of assuming that you're getting that either from your sort of subsistence farm situation or that you're supplementing this like heavy bread and water advice in some way? Yeah. Vegetables and fruit were definitely part of it. Beans, you know, grains, all sorts of different things. Um, You know, whatever people could get, And some of the context for that is this old idea out of Europe called the the called humoral uh, physiology, which was a dietary system um, that, you know, is just complete pseudoscience, you know, based on nothing. And basically it was it was it has this whole class element to it because it says rich people who are idle, they need to eat really refined things like white flour and expensive meats like poultry, which used to be super expensive and for the elites, and sugar. And the hardworking laborers who are working all day, 
they have a, you know, this hotter, tough system and they can have whole grains and vegetables and things like that. But the elites, no, no, vegetables and fruits are dangerous. So this is, is saying eat vegetables and fruits, eat the whole grains. The, the thing that's new is associating vegetarians with the rich and the famous, like all these influencers who are vegetarian or vegan and are you know wealthy. That's totally new in terms of how people perceive vegetarianism because it's often been tied with something that you know poor people would do by necessity rather than choice. Right. Sure. I mean, like you know, the potato famine. It's like all those factory workers need is potatoes. They're good to go. I mean, like Germany, all over Europe. It wasn't just Ireland that was experiencing that because that was like. That was good enough. It was working. Right. Right. Circling back to the the press and how it covers the Graham riots. I'm wondering, did they, I know you said, you know, we, we don't know what day they happened, but in terms of where this is discussed, in your read on this, does the press seem to blame the rioters for what they did? Or is this a case where well, violence is regrettable, but after all, the messenger was troublesome. And so like the problem is him trying to force everybody to eat bread and drink water and, and you know, all the rest of this kind of stuff and where this is really sort of social control that was justified. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that. I mean, there's there's a Maine has like a lot of newspapers back then. So you get kind of a range mm -hmm. of okay. perspectives. And, I, and some of the newspapers, I would say, supported him through this. Uh, but the negative reactions are very much that. Yeah, if he's trying to cram bran bread down the throats of husbands and children, well, no wonder there's a riot. You know, that yeah, of course there's going to be a riot for that. Um, so so yeah, so there was there was a lot of, you know, just yeah, sure, that's what's what happens when you transgress these lines uh kind of reaction to it. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think that we don't really see this in, in history. And that's what this project I've been working on is, is to try to bring this to light. The fact that vegetarianism has such a long history here in Maine. So by 1834, this is not a new thing in Maine. People are doing this. And uh, the Maine Historical Society's Brown Library has a really amazing uh, treasure that uh, illustrates this whole thing. It's the uh, 19th century diaries of Dr. Horace A. Barrows of Harrison. And they're gorgeous documents in and of themselves. Uh, they have some watercolors he, he did in them. And they not only document the 19th century life of a country doctor, but they also document the spread of vegetarianism through social networks during that era, because Dr. Barrows was a vegetarian. He went to the medical school of Maine at Bowdoin, and he documents in his diaries that he first dabbled in vegetarianism in 1829, he tried to do it again in 1831, <laughs> and then he made a serious and sustained commitment after a series of debilitating epileptic attacks in late 1833, and that was six months before the Graham riot. Um, by 1835, he's reporting that he's a full-time vegetarian, and that report is in uh, the influential 1838 book I mentioned, A Vegetable Diet, by Dr. Elcott. And the person who recommended vegetarianism to Barrows was um, 
and this is according to his diary, was the famous Dr. Ruben Musi, who was surgery professor at the Medical School of Maine and later the fourth president of the American Medical Association. And Dr. Musi adopted vegetarianism to steady his hands during surgery. So, and this is all part of the temperance movements because the temperance movement, which Musi was a big advocate of, said, you know, don't drink coffee, don't drink alcohol so that you can be a more pure individual. You know, you won't be trembling about, and people were super sick at this time in America. They had a lot of stomach aches and problems and Barrows had some, had epilepsy or some sort of really severe disease that hindered him throughout his career and he died early. And this is another element. So like Graham was also super sickly as a child and had tuberculosis. And so one of the things that people in that era discovered is if you had tuberculosis, there's no cure for it, that if you adopted a vegetarian diet, your symptoms wouldn't be as severe. You could manage your symptoms. And that's, you know, part of medicine ever since in that there are a lot of conditions and, you know, chronic situations that people can manage with a plant-based diet. So we see that coming in in the 1830s where people are using that as a way to control these diseases that they have and have no way to get rid of them. Thinking overall about this, I'm wondering then, in your mind, what is the legacy of Grahamism and, and yes, perhaps the Graham riots in Maine going forward after the 30s? Where do you see this as fitting in to the, the story of sort of 19th century industrializing Maine? Sure. Well, I think that, you know, it shows us that already in 1830s, women are already starting to vocalize concerns that will, you know, really start to develop in the, the coming decades. So we see those women's rights sentiments, you know, they're documented with this with this riot. And we also see that, you know, Graham challenged conventional ideas about food and gender. And while that did provoke a riot, there were also a lot of Maine people who agreed with his ideas. And I think that speaks to like the independence of Maine and the fact that there's a lot of like radical kind of people and people who are not living a conventional lifestyle in Maine. And that's why they're here. So that's kind of been a through line in Maine's history that we we see, you know, at the time of the Graham riot. And we also see this development of you know, this health food industry, this vegetarian commercial food industry begins to show itself in 1834. And that continues on in, into the modern day. And, you know, my biggest takeaway from this is that Portland has been a veg friendly location for at least 190 <laughs> years. <laughs> and, you know, is what we what we can observe in this riot and the events of uh, the summer of 1834. So I first saw you come into the reading room uh, just maybe after we kind of came back from COVID and we're researching vegetarianism. Did you expect it to take you down this sort of more deeply social commentary path about early women's rights and, and you know, this sort of like early sexual revolution, although very conservative by today's standards? Like, did you kind of have a background to know that or were you surprised to find that? Well, Yes and no. I mean, I think that, first of all, I was really surprised to find this history, you know, sitting here, you know, able to be recovered because 
I've grown up, you know, always going to history museums. I grew up in Maine. My family was interested in history, you know, so it was, you know, so it's not like a new thing to me, but I've never once heard anybody mention anything about a historical Maine vegetarian until William David Barry told me oh, in 2015, Bill. I know, he yeah. told me in 2015 about Ellen G. White, that she was a vegetarian. And so then I looked into that and realized, oh my God, she wasn't just a regular vegetarian. She was like the most influential person when it comes to the American commercial vegetarian food industry. I mean, you know, all the stuff there's vegetarian stuff they're selling at Whole Foods. A lot of that can be tied directly to her and this massive influence she had. So I knew about that. But then I thought, oh, that must just be a fluke, you know, like just random sort of thing. And I didn't I didn't. It took me until just like seven days before the lockdown in Portland is when I discovered the information about Dr. Barrow's vegetarianism. And I was like, who is this guy? And then I found out that you guys have the diaries. And so that's when I was like, I got to get over here and, and see what that's all about. Fascinating stuff. So, you know, I, you know, I'm not surprised that this is tied to issues of, of women's rights because it, vegetarianism has always been tied to people who are oppressed. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a social movement that intersects with pretty much, you know, a lot of abolition, uh, civil rights, you know, the women's rights, obviously animal rights, vegetarianism is always there, uh, gay rights. So it's always somewhere lurking in the background. And, you know, because it is, it's not a diet. That's what people think of it as vegetarian is a diet, but yeah, it is what you eat, but it's, it's a philosophy or a social movement. It's, you know, so it's this wider thing. And that's why there's a lot of backlash to it because it, it's, it's stands in opposition to the conventional mainstream lifestyle and that's inherently threatening. So yeah. It's that's why, you know, it has been erased, I would say, from history. But it's it's really tied into these other other movements in, in interesting ways. Thank you. And uh, just that's such a good point that like dietary history, that matters in and of itself. But it's, of course, never just about that, too, seemingly right, where there's these other cultural lifestyle. Yeah. And economic and all these other social issues at play that get bound up with what we consume and how we do it and the way people think about that and how it, it changes over time. And so that's, it's so, it's so exciting that you're, you're doing this, this kind of work to bring that. With all of the interesting avenues that you can take with this, do you have another project in the works or another article or, um, I mean, I, I know you have uh, an exhibit coming up in the fall at Maine Historical Society to feature some of the history, probably some of what we've talked about today, but broader topics. Well, the, the exhibit, what we're hoping to do with the exhibit is to illustrate, because there's so much, so, you know, what do you focus yes. on and make it smaller, right? But we want to focus on the food that people ate. At, I think we decided we could maybe fit three in and do kind of some little vignettes of a kitchen set up and then have like some food products and talk about like how the food that people ate, vegetarian food people ate, changes over time. So probably like the the 1830s and then, you know, probably like 1910s, 20s, and then maybe the 70s, 1970s, Do you know, those Very three nice 
marks and then probably have some other information about like the riot and you know other other historical things i do want to write something this summer because it's the 300th anniversary of the earliest vegetarian i've been able to document in maine of oh, his wow. death and that would be uh father sebastian rail oh. who massacred 300 years ago at nadran soak um oh yes and and so, that's so I'm in real house. <laughs> yes, right. it is. That's oh, really? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's my time period and all the rest. I forgot. Did you know he was a vegetarian? I didn't. I didn't. I knew he was on a diet because he was in his like sixty, late sixties, early seventies when he was killed. Um, and I know he he did. He definitely drank chocolate, and so he was not. Uh, you know, yes, he was certainly not a grandma. He wasn't a grandmite. Yeah, he was not a grandmite. Um, and so I didn't know that he, I think he was troubled by like arthritis or something by his sixties. And so he might have, uh, I knew that he was only semi-mobile, which made it all the more impressive. He was able to escape Massachusetts militia in 1722 in the middle of the winter, which somebody probably tipped him off, but, uh, that he was, I think, seeking treatment for it and maybe yeah, dietary as well. So. All right. Well, what I, so like. Uh, you know, nobody's called him a vegetarian. And when you look at the way people talk about him, they talk about him as a classic religious ascetic and that, you know, he chopped his own wood. And not only did he just, you know, it wasn't just that he ate a vegetarian because nobody says that. They say that he just ate cornmeal porridge with a little sprinkled maple sugar and maybe some acorns and maybe you know, some root vegetables. So really, really basic. But, you know, in terms of what's available, that's, you know, that's what you've got going on. And I mean, also- his Wabanaki hosts he was living with, most of them absolutely were not vegetarian. So no, he would have had were- fish and other meat, although right. that would have been the very much the winter diet uh, right. that they were on in the lean times for sure. But like, yes, if it was the rest of the year, that would be his his choice. Um, right. And he and they did. And and so there's records of him saying he doesn't like their meat and fish. And that's interpreted by later people as like, well, of course, the Wabanaki were horrible cooks, you know, so you get that layer of prejudice <laughs> coming in. But nobody understands that at that time in the seven early 1700s, he's French. He was from France. And at that time in France, there was a huge vegetarian movement going on, especially in uh, the monasteries and especially in the universities. And so that's, you know, what he would come out of. So, you know, it's not at all a stretch that he would be doing this because of, you know, religious reasons or, you know, whatever reasons. But I just think when people then wrote about it later, they didn't know about that because most of this is not in history books. Yeah. So speaking of, of books, is there a book... Or, or another work by somebody else that you would recommend to our listeners? There aren't very many books about vegetarian history. It's something that needs way more scholarship on. And I actually produced a, or put together a list for the, the Vegan Museum, which is a museum in Chicago. And let's see, I, I'll look at my list and, and tell you what's what's on there. So there aren't a ton of books about this. There's the, the most recent one is the Vegetarian Crusade, that the rise of an American reform movement from 1817 to 1921. 
there's there's other ones like the 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 one that is the most comprehensive is Vegetarian America: A History, which was written in two thousand and four. There's one by a, a UK writer, Vegetarianism: A History, and that is more of a you know a world a look at world vegetarian history. The, these other two are, are American uh, vegetarian history, and even that vegetable diet book that Elcott wrote back in eighty. 1838 that has some vegetarian history in it and there's other like interesting interesting books the vegetarian flavor bible which is a cooking book has a whole timeline of vegetarian history in it which i find to be very useful and helpful um there's also like sins of the flesh uh history of ethical vegetarian thought again that's a you know looking at at world history so yeah, so there there aren't a ton of books. I wish there were more. There are no books on hit the history of vegetarianism just in a single state or a single city or anything like that. So it's it's really an area that that you know we could use a lot more investigation. And I think that's why like when I started looking around, it it wasn't hard to find things. It because they're they've just been sitting there, but nobody's ever looked. I never looked. So, yeah, so I think that it's it, there's there's history like this that's hiding in all kinds of states. And my research has you know shown some of that, but there's a lot more to be found. Histories of food and diet, and you know, the scholars like yourself are doing so much interesting, pathbreaking work on that. And I'm really excited to see what not only you but but other uh, other colleagues of yours in the field are are doing. Yeah. Are you yourself a vegetarian? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Long time, long term, or I became your research influenced you. <laughs> I became a vegetarian in 1988 when I was oh, wow. uh, working at Burger King. Oh, <laughs> but that's not really why I became a vegetarian. I became a vegetarian because I was a sophomore in high school that year, and all the sophomores had to do a persuasive speech. And I just randomly selected the topic of animal rights, thinking I like animals. Wow. And I had no idea what animal rights was. Well, I soon learned. And that that's what opened my eyes to what was what was going on with the food. Avery Yale Camilla, thank you so much for joining us. It was so great to have you here talking about riots and diets and all the rest of this stuff. And uh Look for, looking forward so much to your upcoming exhibit. Yeah, definitely. It's always so nice to talk to someone that you help with their research and to kind of be able to discuss the product on the other end of that. So it's really great to hear all the things you found and how you put them together. Well, it's such a treat to uh, chat with both of you here today. I so enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much. Hopefully we will speak with you again. All right. Awesome. Thank you. That's our show. Join us again soon. We've got a lot more great episodes for you. So many, in fact, I'm not even going to tell you what they're about because they're just a, a general. Uh, what's that dish of all the mixed vegetables? Ratatouille. The, oh. the ratatouille. There the we go. Yeah. Medley. The vegetable medley, a real medley like vegetables or a ratatouille, which I only know about that because of the movie with the mice that can cook or whatever. Um, it's been a while, I know. 
That movie wasn't as good as Some Girls, but it was still, you know, uh, it was still okay. Okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, uh, we will be back soon. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Tiffany, for those who want to keep up with this show and all of its hijinks and, and various escapades, where can they find us on the big wide world of social media? Yeah, please check us out on Facebook at Mainly History, Instagram at Mainly.History, reach out through Gmail at MainlyHistoryPod at gmail.com. And we're still on X slash Twitter. We are at Mainly History. So like us, give us stars on all your listening platforms, help the fandom spread, uh, help us do what we do best. And with that, we will hope that you, uh, I hope that you all get to relax, that you can veg out maybe a bit. Oh, I uh, knew it. I knew you were stretching for one more. <laughs> <stretch>. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>